Let's take your Bible and open it up with me, if you will, this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 1. For those of you who are here with us as guests this morning, we uh, are involved on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights through the summer in a series we're calling Learning from the Testimonies of Old Testament Men and Women. And this morning, we're going to look at the life testimony of Hannah. And if Hannah were with us today, giving her testimony, she would tell us some things about what it means to have influence through our lives. I want you to read with me here in 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Rathamah, Zoram, in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, son of Elohu, the son of Tuhu, the son of Zud, of the name of the and he and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other uh, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year uh, from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. One day when uh, Elkanai sacrificed, that he would give a portion to uh, Peniah, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, uh, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, <coughs> if you indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all of the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. 
I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. We're going to look at Hannah and the influence of her life and learn how to influence others through our lives. And really, her influence revolves around two things. One is her prayer life, and the other is her commitment to the Lord. So, if Hannah were to give her testimony to us today, four things that she would tell us about having influence in your life. Number one, she would tell us that God hears prayers that you can't even say out loud. What a picture we have here of Hannah. She has such a deep burden in her heart that God would give her a son. And so she has prayed year after year after year. Benaiah, the other wife of, of her husband, and I want you to know, whenever you depart from the Bible and you uh, depart from one man, one woman, there's always going to be pro problems. And Benaiah would provoke, make fun of Hannah because she didn't have a child. And so we're given a picture of this year when she comes to Shiloh with her husband to worship the Lord, and she prays. Everybody else is eating. She, she is so overwhelmed that she's not interested in food. She has fasted, and now she goes and she prays. She's praying from her heart, and she's crying out to God, but her prayer is so fervent, so earnest, so intense, that uh, while her mouth was moving, no words were coming out. I mean, she had such a deep burden in her life that it overwhelmed her, and she is crying out inwardly to the Lord. So much so that, uh, that Eli, looking at her, her mouth is moving and no words are going out. He mistook her as being drunk, but she said, no, I am just overwhelmed by this need before the Lord. I want you to know, there are some times that the burden of our heart is so great or the need of our life is so great that we don't even know how to pray out loud. You pray and you pray and you pray for a rebellious child or grandchild who has no time for the Lord. And I, I just tell you from experience, I, there have been times that I've laid on the floor before God, or one of my sons. And I didn't even know what to say, but God, you've got to do something. Or you go to the doctor, and he gives you that devastating news, 
and it just overwhelms you, and you come and you cry out, God, do something. Just this past week, over Facebook, I learned that a dear friend who, after he graduated from seminary, went to Syracuse, New York, and started a church. And for over 35 years, he stayed there. He, he was faithful during the lean years. But he just invested his life, and he's grown a strong, vibrant church that reaches a lot of people for Jesus and disciples them. And I just learned that he spent the last 54 days in the hospital. Just let loose last week for six months recovery at home and then limited activity after that. And I thought, God, why would you? I mean, this guy has been faithful, 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 and fruitful. And the inclination of my heart was just to say, Lord, would you heal him? But as I was praying for him, I just was overwhelmed that this might be a sickness for the glory of God and the salvation of others. And I didn't know how to pray. And I just, for my friend, laid before the Lord and asked him to touch his life and give him an unusual sense of the presence of God. I, I don't know about you. There are just some times I don't know how to pray. But can I give you four biblical truths about uh, those times when uh, our, our, our burden or our need goes beyond our ability to pray? Number one, God knows your need before you ask. In uh, Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching on prayer and and, 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 and the verses just before he gives the model prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it really is an outline of the elements of prayer. Right before that, he says, you don't pray like the heathen pray who, who think that because they keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over, they'll be heard. No, he said, you pray with confidence because your Father knows your needs before you ask him. When you and I pray, we're not informing God about anything that he doesn't know. Prayer isn't designed for the information of God. It is designed to teach us our absolute dependence upon him. God knows your need before you ask. Number two, God knows your heart. The verse that we'll look at later on tonight, 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says God doesn't see as other man does on the outward man, but he looks on the heart. He knows what's going on inside of you. He knows the depth of that burden or the greatness of that need that overwhelms you. Three, you have divine intercession surrounding you when you pray. Let me just give you some verses from Romans 8. 
Romans 8, verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep to be uttered. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here you are praying. Lord, I just do something. And God the Holy Spirit who indwells me is praying for things too great for me to express. And he's praying the will of God in my life. And then you come down uh, to the verse 34, uh, or, or, or excuse me, uh, verse 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Do you think prayer is important? <laughs> that God the Holy Spirit would be interceding for you and that Jesus seated at the right hand of God is interceding on your behalf. And then the fourth truth that I give is that God is not limited by your wisdom in knowing how to pray. Ephesians 3.20 says, now to him who is able to do abundantly above and beyond what we can think or ask. And so here's Hannah, and she's praying. She's crying out. No words are coming out of her mouth. Just her heart before the Lord. But I want you to know those four truths or at work in her life. The second thing that Hannah would tell us, she were giving her testimony about living an influential life, is that God's timing is always right. I mean, Hannah has been praying for years and years and years for a child. Why did God delay? Why did he answer her the first time that she asked? Why did he, he wait all of these years and, and she goes with the provoking of, uh, of Beniah and she goes with this, with this burden in her heart and she prays and she prays and she prays and she prays. Why doesn't God answer us the first time that we pray? Can I give you just a verse that helps you understand the perfect timing of God that has to do with the birth of Jesus? Galatians 4.4 uh, 4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, 
born of a woman. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God had promised the coming of the Messiah. It starts in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And so that promise goes for thousands of years, and yet the Messiah does not come. You, you have that picture at uh, the birth of Jesus, of Anna, that, that prophetess who, who prayed earnestly, waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the coming of the Messiah. But Galatians 4.4 4 says that when the fullness of time was come, when it was just exactly the right moment, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. It was at the exact right moment to fulfill all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. It was that exact right moment that Rome would be ruling so that the cross would become a reality. And so it is in the birth of Samuel. She's been praying for years and years and years every time they go up to Shiloh. But I want you to know that, that Samuel is born at just the right moment that he is going to be the transition between the judges and the kings, and that the influence of his life is going to have an impact not only in the present of, 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 of his work, but in the future, in fact, into eternity. He was born at just the right moment. And when you understand God's perfect timing, when you understand that God's never early and He's never late, that His timing is just the right timing to answer your prayer, it gives persistence and perseverance to your prayer. You don't grow weary in real doing, you don't lose hope, you just trust God that He hears, He answers, but He answers in the perfection of His purpose, the perfection of knowing the exact right time. And Hannah would tell us that. The fourth thing, third thing that Hannah would tell us is that uh, commitments to the Lord are never to be taken lightly. Hannah prays with such intensity, such fervency. And, and she, in that prayer that comes from the depth of her heart, she says, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to the Lord all of the days of his life. And God hears the prayer this year. And uh, she has a son named Samuel. The Lord has heard. 
Elkanah gets ready to go back to Shiloh. And Hannah says, I can't go right now until I've weaned my child because I made a commitment. I vowed a vow to the Lord. And when she had weaned her child, she brings her, brings him to uh, Eli. And at the end of, of 1 Samuel 1, she says to him, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I pray, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, here's the dedication I have, lent him to the Lord. And as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Can you imagine? But I want you to know her keeping her commitment is absolutely essential to God's shaping and working in Samuel's life. Because you know what it says? After she makes this commitment, I lend him to the Lord as long as he lives, he will be Lent to the Lord, it says, and he worshiped, he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. We're going to look at Samuel's life tonight and what God does in his life because of his mother's commitment. But I want you to know, keeping commitments is an expression of both faith and faithfulness. It cost Hannah to make this commitment and to keep it. Can you just imagine she brings her son that she's longed for and she leaves him with Eli. She'll see him once a year when she comes to Shiloh. But he's going to live with Eli, the priest, from then on. It costs her, but it pays dividends because God's going to raise up Samuel to be the great spiritual leader of Israel. In uh, <clears throat> Matthew 7, one of the most sobering verses in all of the Bible, Jesus says, whether we keep our commandments or or our commitments, or we don't, is the difference between true and false faith. For Jesus says in these verses, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Said many will say to me in that day, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do many great works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. 
you workers of iniquity. Because while they had an identity, they didn't have a commitment that they kept in their life of doing the Father's will. Can I tell you something? It's a serious thing to bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. Let me give you two verses. From, from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now, what he's simply saying, if you make a commitment, keep it to the Lord. And it's better not to make a commitment than to make a commitment and not keep it. And he says, if you do that, it's a fool for him. Listen, you make some commitments in your life. You stood at an altar and you said, I do, I take you, for better, for worse, until death do us part. You made a commitment before God. Simple as that. You made a commitment when you became a part of a body of believers. And that is that you would be a ministering part We, we live in a day where you know, folks just bounce here and bounce there looking for what pleases me. And we forget that it's all about commitment. It's Rick Warren wrote his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. You know what the first sentence of it is? It's not about you. It's all about him. And when you and I make commitments, we're not to take them lightly. That's what Hannah would say. And then the last thing that Hannah would tell us is that only heaven will reveal the full influence of your life. Hannah never lived to see how God would use her son Samuel. How he would become the great spiritual leader of Israel. How he would be the righteous judge and he would be the prophet of God. That he would be the man who would make David king and through that he would be a part of another son of David, Jesus, and the salvation of many. She couldn't see that. But I want you to know it comes back to her life. Can I just close with a story of two contrasting mothers? You have influence for good or for bad but you have influence in your life. You can have influence for bad. 
Several years ago, I, I ran across this obituary. It was penned by the children of a deceased mother. It's heartbreaking, but they wrote it for their local newspaper. Here's what it says. Marianne Teresa Johnson Reddick, born January the 4th, 1935, and died alone on September the 30th, 2013. She is survived by six or eight children who she spent her life torturing in every way possible. While she neglected and abused her small children, she refused to allow anyone else to care or show compassion toward them. When they became adults, she stalked and tortured anyone they dared to love. Everyone she met, adult or child, was tortured by her cruelty and exposed to her violence, criminal activity, vulgarity, and hatred for the gentle and kind human spirit. On behalf of her children, whom she so abrasively exposed to her evil and violent life, we celebrate her passing from this earth and hope she lives in the afterlife, reliving every gesture of violence, cruelty, and shame that she delivered to her children. Her surviving children will now live the rest of their lives with the peace of knowing that their nightmare finally has a form of closure. Isn't that heartbreaking? That kind of negative influence. Let me tell you about another mother. Let me tell you about my mother. They're, they're, I mean, she influenced my life in four areas. One is on building your life on the foundation of God's Word. My mother didn't just read the Bible to us. She taught us the Bible in the course of life. And she taught us the truth of God's Word and the foundation that it gives to life. Two, my mother taught me faithfulness to the church. My youngest memory that I have is my mom taking us to the Philadelphia Baptist Church north of Jonesville, Arkansas. We went Sunday morning to Sunday school. We went Sunday night to training union. We went to Wednesday night prayer meeting. We went to two weeks of vacation Bible school, two weeks of, of revival in the spring, and two weeks of revival in the fall. I mean, we were there. I'm absolutely convinced that if they were going to change the lights at the church, and my mama knew it, she'd pack us up and she'd take us because they didn't open the doors of the Philadelphia Baptist Church, that we weren't there. And it was there that God brought me into the influence of people like Lenny Ishmael, who, who, who when I was just a, a primary and a, a, and a sunbeam, poured Jesus into my life and 
though she had never been out of Craighead County, taught me to love the world. It was there that there were men that God used to mentor and reveal. I, I, I mean, my mama taught me that being a part of the church is vital to life. Thirdly, my mama taught me to love sacrificially. I remember the years my brother and I were teenagers. My mama would go for years without a new dress just so we'd have money to go out on the weekend. When she fried the chicken, She'd wait till everybody else had eaten. And she'd eat whatever was left, whether it was a back or a neck. And she taught me to put others first. We love sacrificially. And then my mama taught me to build your life around prayer. She prayed with us but she prayed for us. When we went through the rebellious time, she interceded for us. How would you know it's impossible to overstate the influence of your prayer life and the example of your commitment to Jesus on the following generations, on your children and on your grandchildren? What's the influence of your life? Is it impacting those around you to come to Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow him? 